Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. It's taken from Exodus chapter 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Our second reading can be found on page 1202. It's Hebrews chapter 3. Page 1202, Hebrews 3, starting at verse 7. So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion, during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, and for forty years saw what I did. 
That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Good morning, Ian. Thank you very much for reading for us. Uh, we will be looking at that second reading from Hebrews in a little while, so do keep a, a, a news sheet or something stuck into that reading, but we're going to start back in Exodus chapter 17, which is on page uh, 75 in the Church Bibles. So do keep your Bibles open there, and let's pray as we turn to God's Word. Father, we thank you for these words which are given to us as an encouragement on the journey that we may understand ourselves and understand you and your ways as we journey. Please, would they be an encouragement to us this morning? as we journey towards uh, the promised land of the new creation. In Jesus' name, amen. I guess in life we ask all kinds of questions. Sometimes the questions don't really matter very much. Uh, Perhaps questions like, uh, what's for lunch today? Uh, There are other questions that uh, matter a lot more. Should I take that job Should I buy that house, Uh, Sheffield Wednesday or Sheffield United, those sort of questions? Of course, there are even bigger questions in life than those. What kind of life will I live? Will I be happy or sad? Will it be a good life or a frustrating life? When the hospital calls, will the results be positive or negative? There are all kinds of questions that we ask as we go through life, but there is a question before us this morning which towers over any other question that any human could ask at any point in life. Did you see it there in our reading from Exodus 17? It's there in verse 7. Is the Lord amongst us or not? This is no philosophical debate you might have in a coffee shop with a few friends to while away the hours discussing life and big things like that. Now, this is a most urgent, practical question about life and death and hope and despair because the book of Exodus is about a people who uh, used to live in in a broken world full of toil and hardship, living under the slavery of Pharaoh, trapped and unable to do anything about it. But then we read that God, whose name is the Lord, he remembered his people with great power and great love. He freed them from the toil of slavery in order to bring them to a land of rest, a land flowing with milk and honey. But this morning in Exodus 17, the people aren't there yet. They're still on the journey from slavery to the promised land. And in that journey, In a desert far from home, they cry out, 
Is the Lord amongst us or not? Do you see what's at stake behind that cry? You see, if he is with them, then all that he's promised to them, all his plans and purposes about rest and the new creation, uh, they will all happen. But if the Lord is not amongst his people and he is not behind this great journey, well then there is no hope in the future. There is no survival beyond uh, the, the crisis they are in. The puzzling thing for us this morning is that the Lord is with his people. We've seen that again and again in Exodus, in the plagues, crossing the Red Sea, the Passover, in his provision so far on the journey. The Lord is at work amongst his people. And so how can these people who have had a front row seat watching God at work, how can they say, is the Lord amongst us or not? And this matters for us because we too are on a journey. Our second reading from Hebrews 3, which we'll come to in a moment, helps us to see the parallel between that journey then and our journey now as we head towards the new creation. And so we need to understand how it is possible for a people who saw so much of the Lord's activity amongst them to now say, is he actually with us or not? Because uh, we too will need to persevere on the journey, remaining confident that God is faithfully with us and amongst us. So how can we be a people as we journey towards the new creation who remain absolutely confident that God is with us at working his purposes and plans out for us? Think of little Annabelle baptized this morning. How can she grow up to be a person who remains confident, trusting the Lord through all that life might throw at her in the years to come? Well, I think Exodus 17 gives us some crucial lessons on the journey. First, we see, don't put God to the test. We pick up the story in Exodus 17. There's a a strong sense of deja vu as we read the, the, the story again. Uh, verse 1, we see that the people of God traveling in the desert. We've seen that before. And then again, as before, verse 1, God is the one setting the sat-nav and choosing the route. And then you've guessed it, verse 1. There was no water for the people to drink, so they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. You see, for the third time in three chapters, a, a crisis is unfolding for the people of God. But this time around, the third time around, the mood is different in the camp. Look at the way the people quarrel with Moses. It's so severe, verse 4, that after all he had done to lead them thus far, he was afraid that they would stone him. Such was their anger. And there's also a different attitude towards God. Last week in Exodus 16, we read that God was testing his people, much like a a kind teacher might test their class before a big exam by giving them a a mock exam to help them understand how they were progressing along the way as they they learned what they had to learn. But do you notice here in Exodus 17, the students try to turn the tables around and the people are trying to test God. Verse 2, Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? 
Why do you put the Lord to the test? Or again in verse 7, he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord amongst us or not? We are seeing here a people who are testing God. Which means I think that they are coming to God with their expectations and plans and they are saying, okay God, this is what we want from you. Now, will you step in and do the things that we want from you? In our timing, in our way, as we want it. This kind of attitude is fine, I guess, if you're ordering Christmas presents on Amazon. You can search for the exact present you want. You can then look at uh, the suppliers and read reviews about how reliable they are. You pick the one that uh, you think is best. And then you can choose what kind of delivery system you want, uh, when you want your gift to arrive. And we like it that way, don't we? We like being in charge of what we get and when we get it and how we get it. Which is why Amazon is so incredibly successful. But this is never the right attitude to have to our relationship with God. You see, in Exodus, the Lord is the one in charge. He is the one with all the power. He is the one directing the journey and calling the shots. And he even decides when the hardships should come and for how long they should last. And can we see why this kind of testing of God is so dangerous? Uh, The people are writing God's job description for him. And when they reckon that he hasn't quite matched the job description they have for him, well, they decide either he's not with them at all or he's doing a rubbish job of being God. Either way, it's a dangerous conclusion. But I wonder if we do the same thing ourselves. I don't know. Uh, God doesn't promise good health for us. And yet, at times when Christians uh, experience poor health, at times we're tempted to make our health the barometer for whether we think that God is being good to us or not. Make it a, a kind of litmus paper test for whether we can trust God's faithfulness. But if we make our health or the health of a loved one, if we make that a, a test case for whether we can trust God and believe in his goodness to us, well then we are on very shaky ground for the Lord has not promised us that. Or perhaps uh, God doesn't promise us a rewarding, well-paid job. But when we apply for that dream job and we don't get it, it is possible, isn't it, to feel as if God has let us down. That he hasn't done very well with the job description of being the kind of God we want him to be. I think that's the kind of testing we see going on here in Exodus 17. And it is dangerous when God's people tell God how God should be God. Don't put God to the test. But I guess there'll be some here this morning who think, well then, okay, we, we shouldn't test God, but, but how do we know if God is with us? 
How, how can we be confident along the journey that he is actually there with us, keeping his promises, helping us, unless there are some clear ways in which we can spot that he is? Otherwise, it can feel as if being a Christian is more like a blind leap of faith, especially when our circumstances are screaming out what seems to be the opposite of what we believe. Well, as we look again at Exodus 17, this is where I think the context becomes so important for us. And next, and the next lesson we learn, I think, is that we must not forget God's past provision. Don't forget God's past provision. Now, you can imagine the scene one morning in the world of Exodus 17. Well, actually, in fact, we don't have to imagine too hard because we're told what the people were saying in verse 3. But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? So you can imagine them there in the morning grumbling away with that kind of cry against Moses and God. But we can also imagine what they must have been doing that morning in and around the camp. Because we were told back in Exodus 16 what they are doing every morning in and around camp. Because we were told in last week's reading that the Lord had committed to provide every morning manna from heaven, that sweet honey wafer bread that would feed his people for the next 40 years. And so we know that just a few weeks later now in Exodus 17, he must still be doing it, which means that the people must have just collected a whole load of sweet honey wafers that morning. You can imagine them almost wiping the crumbs of manna off their faces as they cry out, God, where's the water? You see, when a crisis comes along, we are so very quick to lock our hearts in on that particular issue. And we watch and see if God will answer our prayers as we want. And as we wait and wonder and worry, we are so quick to forget what's happened all around us. And particularly in our past, how God has been so faithful to us providing for us all that we need. And we are seeing here in Exodus 17 the remarkable capacity for humans that we all have to forget God's past provision when the particular new crisis comes our way. Suddenly it all goes out the window as we lock in on at the moment in front of us. A few weeks ago I mentioned how our family had moved from the US to England um, to help work for a local church uh, in England, uh, it was all a bit of a disaster. Um, it all fell apart very quickly, not because of my parents and my family, but because of other circumstances. But you can imagine having uh, moved countries thinking that we were serving God. You can imagine in that moment of despair as my parents looked around them at what seemed to be a disaster. You can imagine them wondering why God had allowed this particular scenario to unfold the way it had. It was very easy to make that particular moment the barometer for whether God was actually a good God and worth following. And for a number of months, it felt like he had done a pretty bad job, humanly speaking. We were in the wrong continent with no income, no job, no reason for being there. And there were moments as a family when we thought, what is God doing? Is he really caring for us? Is he actually good at caring for us? And in those moments, we need to be people who do not forget God's past provision. 
For the people of Israel, they should have looked back at the manna that they'd just eaten that morning and reminded themselves that, yes, God was loving, that God was aware of their daily needs, that God was going to keep his promise to keep them safely through to the promised land. And so as this new crisis came towards them, they should have remembered that God was going to keep them, for he had always, always kept them in the past. And we saw that last week as Christians, we have something even greater than manna in the desert to remember as a sign of God's love and faithfulness. We have the true bread that came down from heaven, Jesus Christ himself, the very one that we are remembering at Christmas time. The ultimate uh, act of God's love, sending his son into the world uh, to die for us. Remember how uh, Paul put it? God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if God has done the very hard thing in forgiving sinners, then surely he will do the much easier thing of bringing us safely to the new creation. Don't forget God's past provision. And so I do wonder this morning, how can we be Christians who are good at remembering God's past provision when our circumstances are screaming out to us a different story and we are tempted to doubt God's goodness? Well, this is where I think Hebrews 3 can be so helpful for us. So if you have a Bible, do uh, keep a finger in Exodus 17, but flick forward to Hebrews uh, chapter 3 page 1202 of the church Bibles. This is a passage written to Christians warning us not to be like those people in Exodus. Verse eight, we are not to harden our hearts. Verse nine, we are not to try to test God like we have just seen the people of Israel doing in Exodus 17. And then in verse 12, we read these words. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We are to encourage one another daily. I don't think this means that uh, we should go around saying to uh, someone, I love the Christmas jumper, it looks great on you. You That's not the kind of encouragement that the the writer's talking about. No, he's talking about a particular kind of encouragement to do with, with Jesus. Remember that Jesus in the past has done everything necessary for you. He has died for you. His death was enough to bring us to God. His death ensures that we will be welcomed into the new creation of God's rest. All has been done for us. There is no guilt, no fear, no condemnation. When life is hard, and it was for the Hebrew Christians, and it will be for us, we need that kind of encouragement. And we need to remember not to put our trust in sin that offers us so much but actually gives us so little. It's so fleeting, the pleasure that comes with sin. It is gone like a morning mist. But rather, the writer says, entrust ourselves to God and his promises. That's why it's so important to come on a Sunday, to gather with other Christians, to to hear God's word read and explained. 
that we may be encouraged like this about Jesus, all the things he has done for us in the past, and that our circumstances may not overwhelm us as we think about whether God is with us or not. It's why gathering for small groups throughout the week is such an important time for us as we need encouragement from others day by day to remember that Jesus is enough, that God's promises are true and lasting. The British astronaut uh, Tim Peake is about to blast off to the International Space Station on Tuesday. And uh, I've enjoyed kind of reading about his, uh, his mission to space this week. Uh, lots of dangerous moments along the way, but apparently the most dangerous uh, time for any astronaut up in the space station is if they have to go out and do a spacewalk, um, you know, outside the, the actual station itself. And I was reading that um, if you do go on a spacewalk, it takes four hours to put this, the suit on that enables you to go outside um, the, the space station. And there are over 100 pages of safety checks you have to go through before you can actually go out. All the, the, the buckles and braces and, and pumps you have to check. But you can imagine why you would check, wouldn't you? If you're about to head out into space with nothing between you and disaster but the suit, you would check carefully, wouldn't you? Everything. You double check, triple check. And we say, well, yeah, fair enough. I would do the same in that kind of danger. But I wonder if we realize that the danger that we are on, heading towards the new creation, well, it's just as dangerous, if not more dangerous. Because the people in Exodus 17, they don't make it. Do you see Hebrews 3, verse 11? They shall never enter my rest. see, these people are on a wonderful journey with an incredible God who keeps his promises. But they have allowed their hearts to become so hard over the months and years. And in their rebellion, the Lord says, enough is enough. And they do not enter the rest of the new creation. And so we need to be careful with our hearts, checking where hardness is creeping in, making sure that we are those who are believing the promises of Christ. And I do wonder, are we going through the daily habits of letting God's word examine us and soften our hearts as we read and pray through the scriptures, not forgetting God's past provision? Well, finally, back in Exodus 17, uh, do flick back in your Bibles to that uh, first reading page 75 the final lesson we need to learn from these people is don't forget God's present help I guess we know how the water shortage is fixed verse 5 God sends Moses out in front of the people along with the elders but do notice he doesn't go out empty handed he is told to take God's staff with him And verse 6, it was as he struck the rock with that staff, that is when the water gushed out of the rock and quenched the thirst of the people. You see, this staff of God is is, is so important in this episode. The staff isn't magical. The staff represents God's power and his presence. 
throughout Exodus, we've seen Moses with this staff at various key moments. He has lifted it up and, and, and prayed. Uh, plagues came when he did it. Or at the Red Sea, when he raised the staff of God, the waters parted. Not because Moses was doing it, but because God was there. The staff is a symbol of God's power and presence. And as Moses in Exodus 17 strikes the rock, we are seeing that God is present with his people in an ongoing way to help provide for his people. Even as they grumbled and tested him, he was amongst them providing water for them. And this is the key for what happens next. While they're still camped at Rephidim, verse 9, the Amalekites attack and Joshua heads out on the ground with some, with some troops to engage in battle. Meanwhile, Moses, verse 10, heads up onto a nearby hill for a who-can-hold-your-hands-up-longest competition. Uh, it does seem rather strange, doesn't it? There's poor old Joshua down on the ground fighting away, and there's Moses with his arms raised in the air, or at least trying to keep them raised. For it seems, verse 11, that when his hands are raised, God's people are winning down on the ground. But when Moses lowers his hands, verse 12, well, the enemy are winning. What are we to make of this? It seems like a rather bizarre moment. I guess there are all kinds of strange interpretations about how we should pray with our hands lifted up. And if we do so, God's more likely to hear our prayers. And if we drop our hands physically, then, well, he won't hear us. But I think this misses the point of what's going on here. Because the key to Moses lowering his hands or lifting his hands is what he's holding in his hand. Verse 9. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. If there was any doubt that God was with his people in an ongoing and real sense, then surely now there is no more doubt. You see, the staff symbolizes God's power and presence. And it's like an on-off thing, isn't it? The staff is raised. God's people are winning. God is with them. But when God withdraws from his people, the staff is lowered. Then that's when his people are overwhelmed by the enemy. Do you see how clear it is? God is showing his people what it's like when he is with them and when he's not with them. Staff lowered and raised. So the point here is that even as the people are grumbling and testing God, even then he is with them by his mighty power and presence, protecting them against the enemy. And thank goodness for Moses. He is the the servant, the, the channel through whom God blesses and protects his people. But what about us today? We don't have a, have a Moses standing up on a hill for us, raising a staff of God to intervene when life is difficult and the enemies crowd around us. But we do have one greater than Moses. We have Jesus. You see, unlike Moses, Jesus didn't carry around a staff to symbolize God's power and presence because he himself is God. And we read in Hebrews 7.24 that he always lives to intercede for us. What a wonderful thought that before the throne of glory, Jesus is there, lifting up our case, our need 
day by day, in an ongoing sense, looking out for us, powerfully caring for his people. And so the final lesson for us this morning is don't forget God's present help. Is the Lord among us or not? I guess I've sat with many people over the years grappling with the loss and pain and struggle that comes with living in this fallen world. The journey can be incredibly hard at times. And I've noticed as the questions come flooding in from all directions about why and when and what if, behind all these questions, so often the really big question is the question about God. Does he still love me? Is he still with me on the journey? Well, Exodus 17 is written for our encouragement. And yes, he is with us. He may not give us everything we want when we want it, but he is faithfully, powerfully with us every step of the way. And so may we be people who increasingly believe this on the journey. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words of great encouragement, but also words of warning that we must be people who continue to trust your promises and goodness and faithfulness. So, Father, we pray that even when our circumstances scream out a different story, may you help us to be people who remain utterly confident in your goodness, in your love, in your promises, that we may not be those who harden our hearts in the time of testing, but rather remain confident that you are with us and that you will bring us safely to rest. In Jesus' name. Amen.